Ladies and gentlemen, hello again, and welcome back to Don't Worry About the Government. My name is Chris Novembrino. On this audio-only episode, I have a number of different topics I want to talk to you about. I've got an anecdote that is going to lead into our discussion about the vaccine and booster shots and the administration. I want to talk, of course, about what has been going on with Kristen Cinema, uh, she has made herself very much a point of focus over the last week since we last spoke, and although my thoughts remain the same, so I'm going to try to come up with some fresh and different slants on this same angle that Kristen Cinema is the worst, uh, we need to talk about what happened with her, especially including the bathroom. Got long thoughts on that one. I've got a number of these small stories that I have fairly long thoughts on, I suppose. Like, you know, on one hand... The bathroom incident is small. On the other hand, like, you know, it's something worth talking about, and we will get into that. We need to talk a little bit about Blumenthal and Finsta and Facebook and the Facebook outage. That actually seems to be a fairly substantial story. I don't have the Pandora papers on the slate for this episode. I still need to go through them, and this this is just something that... If I'm going to do that, I got a hunch that that's going to be basically its own self-contained episode. So be on the lookout for that. I will sit down and do a Pandora Papers thing at some point here. And then last, uh, because we need one more small topic, right? We need to talk about the Chinese military beginning the test of the airspace of Taiwan. And uh, as I am taping this show, there are more stories involving Taiwan coming out. We need to have a talk about China is how we're going to end this episode. But first, 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 first. Let me begin by saying, I guess, this audio-only episode is audio-only because I was a little under the weather here last week, and I was looking cruddy, and, you know, I just didn't want to roll video when I look like crap, because one of the things that happens when I get sick is I start getting, like, really bad acne and stuff on my face, so uh, thank you for indulging my modest amount of vanity here. I'm able to, thanks to the wonders of the mask era, cover up, like, the offending parts It'd be like, I'm doing this for your safety, and then I don't have to worry about the public shame of having like a really horrible like acne breakout on my chin and stuff. It's grody. Uh, I'll be glad when it is over. I'm not like sick with the Rona or anything like that. I'm actually I'm feeling better. I'm still just like modestly congested, but uh, you know the big thing is I got all like the threshold sickness symptoms of skin crap, lots of skin crap. That's that's sort of my thing. Uh, so thank you for all, or all of you for indulging me. Uh, there are probably a handful of you who are like, hey, no video? Fantastic. Uh, or you don't care because you're listening to it in the car anyways. And in which case, we should just probably end the monologue here on that front, right? All right, so let's stay on this topic sort of here because uh, I need to relay a personal anecdote. Like we've, we've talked about vaccine resistance and I talked about my trip to Massachusetts and, uh, you know, the, the stories involving, like, Hamden County, where we were at and everything on a prior episode. Uh, I unfortunately have another story that plays into that for my own personal life, so I just wanted to relay that along. Um, on Saturday night, I was hanging out and working. I'm watching Star Trek again. <laughs> I got riffs on Star Trek here and uh, robotic rights in the context of the broader abortion debate, but that will have to be saved for another time. Um, 
I was sitting and watching Star Trek and working at my nurse staffing job and, you know, getting positions up and everything just because you know, I need the extra cash and, like, I don't really want to go out on Saturday nights right now. Um, the extra money is cool, too. So... I'm working, and a friend of mine texts me. Um, he stayed here before. He's a bit of a couch surfer. You know, he goes from place to place, and you know, that that's fine. Like, you know, I'm totally fine with that. Um, and he texts me. He goes, hey, I, I need a place to stay. And I'm like, okay, well, you, you could stay here for a while. That's fine. It wouldn't have been the first time he's been here. I think he's made a cameo on Don't Worry About the Government, uh, at least on a couple of episodes, maybe even just one. But he's definitely been on at least one episode. I feel fairly confident in saying that. And... I, uh, you know, told them the arrangement and, you know, we, we had all that stuff ironed out. There was no like debate or anything like that. And he tells me he's got to be out of the place he's at like the next day. I was like, oh, okay. You're cutting this really close. Okay, cool. That's fine. Um, so on Sunday he comes over, uh, his friend and him show up very late. His friend had a U-Haul and, uh, they unloaded the U-Haul and I've got a closet downstairs, which I told him he could use for storage. And he, he packed that closet in. He, he was, he saw the space he had available and he made the most out of the space. No problem with that. That's exactly what that closet space is there for. Um, and you know, we're hanging out and you know, he's getting settled in and everything like that. And we were, you know, catching up a little bit cause we haven't talked in a bit. Um, we have a mutual friend of relayed the story about the local musician here who uh, got COVID at his album release party and died. So I, you know, I relayed that story and we have a mutual friend, um, who is very close with that musician, uh, and, like took the loss of that guy very badly, you know? totally different situation uh me and this other musician were not particularly close uh i wouldn't say there was like a ton of warmth there um whereas you know for my, for my friend our mutual friend here they were like buds and everything um you know different people different experiences you know how that thing goes uh, i'm i'm sure people would say the same thing about me if you really think about it uh some people would say that i give you the shirt off my back and other people would say i'm a world league prick that's how we live our lives right so we're talking all about all of this, and I kind of, you know, I'm like, look, dude, you know, uh, this guy made his choices. You know, he chose not to get vaccinated. He chose to continue to have a public-facing job, and if you really don't want to get vaccinated, um, you just have to change the way you want to live right now because of the situation. Um, and then my friend goes, well, you know, like... I'm not even going to have to worry about the vaccine now because I'm about to get my immune system all up. I'm, you know, I'm taking my vitamins. I'm about to be getting a lot of sunlight. I'm about to be getting my immune system, like, ready to go. And I have to stop and go, oh, no, man. Because I know, I know we talk about this from time to time, and I'm still teaching music lessons. So if any of y'all listening are interested in music lessons, please hit me up because I now have 20-something students. Um, and I, we're going to be at 25 here by the end of the month. Like, like... Teaching music is now like a huge thing of what I do, which absolutely 100% rules. Um, I teach a lot of people remote. I teach adults. I'm teaching a, a former nurse, a retired nurse who's 71 out of play the Ramones, which is like a hoot. Uh, it's, it's really fun. He's like really into power chords. Uh, I am teaching a four-year-old who is still you know, not really all that good at speaking out full thoughts and everything like that. Like I had to teach him the word sharp, um, but I'm teaching him piano and he's learning chords and like he can do the work uh, and he's learned how to read notes off a piece of paper. I'm right out the letters. He plays the letters on the keyboard. I mean, this kid's learning. Um, I get to teach this wide range of people. 
I get to be a part of all these different people's lives and help them like grow and improve. And I mean, with the exception of maybe one or two students, dude, it's the most rewarding work I've ever done in my life. It rules. Um, and it's really important to me to keep all these people safe. Uh, one of the big challenges uh, being in the state of Texas is I'm not getting any help from the government, uh, obviously. And uh, the federal government is, and we'll talk about them, only marginally better on this front here. And so it is very much left into my tender mercies to try to figure out what is best for people who are 71 and 4 and everywhere in between to keep everyone maximally safe. And, um, you know, I've had to really kind of think about how I conduct my life. And the, you know, why am I staying in on Saturday night and Sunday night? You're like 35, dude. Shouldn't you be like, you know, still trying to date and shit? Yeah, maybe. But like the issue is that I teach seven days a week, which means I, you know, like, and, and I love that. Don't get me wrong, dude. Like, like I teach seven days a week. I don't have to work a 40 hour week job. I don't have to dress corporate or anything like that. I can dress how I want to dress. I get to set my own hours. I mean, like, dude, like this rules. Uh, you know, I'm also an independent contractor. This is, this is, I'm making, I'm making the same I was making at other jobs. Um, but I'm just like infinitely happier. Um, I've got like an easier schedule. It, it's just, it's great, but I gotta be thinking about everyone's safety, let alone mine, because I need to be working seven days a week. Anytime I take a day off is like taking a little bit of money out of my wallet, and there's no paid time off or anything like that. So, you know, I've had to come up with policies that are, you know, exceedingly cautious and mindful. And uh, when my friend volunteered that he's not vaccinated, I, like immediately my heart sank <laughs> because I was like, oh no, oh buddy, uh, I gotta tell you, You've got to get vaccinated if you want to stay here. Uh, you cannot stay here and be unvaccinated. It, I cannot put my student body, let alone myself, at risk. Not the least of which is my friend is working not one but two um, public-facing jobs. One at a restaurant and another one at like a video movie sort of purchasing place. Like where you're dealing with customers in a direct way. And he's like, well, I wear a mask at these jobs. And, you know, you want to be like, okay, but like the little clothies, like those don't even really count. Like at this point, everyone should be wearing N95s, this, that, and the third. But then also like, you know, you're more of a likelihood and more of a vector of transmission. And I got to be thinking about all these kids who don't have access to the vaccine, who might want to actually get the vaccine and don't have that choice right now. Um, so, I, I mean, I've, I, you know, you, you basically got to get vaccinated. Or you got to find someplace else to go. And my friend goes, well, I'm not getting the fucking vaccine, so I'm going to find someplace else to go. And, like, initially he whips out his phone, and he gets real grumpy about it, and then just passes out because he was tired. Um, I just kind of let himself punch himself out there. I was, like, sitting there when he arrived. I was still curating nurse contracting jobs where, like, you know, I'm copying and pasting the phrase COVID vaccine required. And, you know, you go, think about it like this, dude. If they're requiring all the nurses and doctors to get this, why aren't and this vaccine is bad why aren't the nurses and doctors having like a full-scale revolt and mutiny and i'm not talking about like you know the stories you see about like you know 12 nurses who are really christian or like quitting their job or whatever because of the vaccine being the number of the beast or what i'm talking about like you know like over half of a nursing corps just like walking off and going like 
I, th- this thing is dangerous. You cannot get this. Like, you know, even when they're against it, they're like, we're against the mandate. They, they, they don't have the balls to say it doesn't work, right? Like, they, the water's edging it in a serious way here. Um, you know, <laughs> being very careful where they're choosing to put the flag down because, like, look, we know it works. We know it works. So the evidence is overwhelming. There's 700,000 dead from COVID. You need, it's like 700,000 dead from the vaccine at this point to even really begin this discussion, considering how widely distributed the vaccine is and also how widely saturated COVID-19 has been through the United States population here. Um, if you even just ran the numbers like that, which is a very silly way of writing the numbers, the vaccine still comes way ahead, comes out way ahead. Um and, you know, he wanted to have, like, a broader debate about this. I'm like, dude, I can't do this with you. I can't. I just can't. Um, came back the next day, and uh, I even offered him $100. Uh, I was like, you know, look, uh, you can have a week of free rent here. Um, you know, which, you know, one, I'm charging a re- very reasonable rent. Too, and I'm, two, I'm like, you can have a free week. Like, you can basically just take the week off and, you know, recover if you had any sort of adverse effects. And he still said no. Um it's really it's really demoralizing you know i i mean (laughs) i've done what hundreds and hundreds of episodes of don't worry about the government at this point but probably at least a hundred about the COVID 19 crisis and if you want to like look god don't do this this would be like the most boring thing in the world to do but if like you actually ran the percentage of how much time we've spent talking about COVID 19 on this show since the pandemic began i would say generously speaking it's been about a third of the content maybe 40 percent um, because I, I said to my conservative friend last year, and uh, I stuck to it, uh, that to me, the story of the day is COVID-19 and how we handle this. And that like pretty much everything else is small potatoes compared to that with, with the, maybe the exception now of the story that we're ending on here today, which is uh, rising and in increased aggression from China here. Uh, and um, the fact that America has been fairly behind the curve on this. Um, I mean, you know, Trump and his people were too enamored by Xi Jinping to really see what was going on here. And I think right now, uh, people are scared. Uh, we're still, you know, dealing with this crisis and China sort of taking advantage of that. Um, and we'll, we'll get into that here in a little bit here. But, uh, you know, on the vaccine front, uh, in Vermont, in the last seven days, every single patient in the intensive care unit was unvaccinated. Vermont has an 88% vaccination rate, which means that 12% of the population is responsible for 100% of the ICU stays in that state. It absolutely 100% works. Um, you know, rural COVID death rates are about double those of the metro areas, which is heartbreaking. Uh, not the least of which, because this is a thing I was worried about last year. I was talking about this last year that. The thing about the way this virus is going to work that's going to be so insidious is that you have populations there that are already going to be skeptical about masking up and getting the vaccine and all that sort of thing. And also, they will be justified in that belief because in these more rural areas, it's going to take a while for the virus to get out there. And it's not going to be a problem until it is. Um, And because they're going to be behind the curve and they're going to be watching all these cities get hit while they're not getting hit, they're going to go, guess we're just doing it out here better in our country ways that you guys always make fun of. Um, We've got this right. But just as we see with Idaho, 
they're ultimately going to be proven to be very wrong about this because their hospital facilities, when they get hit, are not going to have the capacity to handle the volume that's going to happen, especially if people aren't vaccinated. I mean, one of the reasons it's actually very important for these rural places to get vaccinated is the example of Vermont. Vermont is a rural state, by the way. Uh, Bernie Sanders is from a rural state. Um, They don't have, like, big hospitals there or anything like that. Um, The way you sort of manage... The way you manage not overstressing the hospital systems in a small rural state like this is by everyone getting vaccinated so that if you get exposed to COVID-19, it means a visit to your doctor and swooning back in your domicile. You can swoon in the comfort of your own house. And I'm not saying it's going to be pleasant. You're going to have COVID-19. That's going to suck. But you're not going to be in an ICU on a ventilator, which is appreciably better. And trust me, if you ask any of those people on an ICU on a ventilator, hey, do you wish that you just like had like a more mild case of this? You were at home swooning in your bed? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so like this is also, though, how a responsible rural locality manages not overtaxing their hospital systems. Um, you know, you, you hear story. God, I heard a story about somebody who got hit by a car this weekend and she had to wait for service because the ICUs and everything were full up. Uh, I, you know, it, this is actually part of being a responsible citizen. Um, and that actually gets me to uh, a dismaying secondary story. This is, this is semi-small potatoes, but it's not small potatoes to me. It really isn't. So uh, I think you all remember that daddy used to have a bit of an addiction to fantasy basketball. And the pandemic really sort of killed my interest in basketball, like changed the rhythm of the league. I didn't think they even necessarily should have been running, especially not without the vaccine. And they were still running. It just felt like this like kind of gross cash grab. And it just, it wasn't, it's not like everything you need to do needs to be in line with your values or whatever. Sometimes like a steak is just a steak, but it was it was just uncomfortable to watch. Like I just didn't enjoy watching it. it you know, it did it just didn't sit right with me. So I stopped watching basketball. Um, now, obviously, we're a couple years into the pandemic. We had the vaccine available and stuff too. So like, I'm not theoretically, I'm not, uh, I guess, uh, opposed to having basketball still going. Although I think, especially given the current rate of the pandemic. It's really hard to justify running these open arena shows, isn't it? Like, like not like I'm not talking open air. I'm talking like you know, getting thirty thousand people in a place with the numbers being what they are nationwide. Really, uh, and, and in particular, I guess it should be state by state. But the worst offenders are really bad offenders, and you're just kind of you're giving cigarettes to someone who's addicted to cigarettes in some of these cases. Like Texas does not need more football games when Texas is not even 50% vaccinated or is like barely 50% vaccinated or whatever. Um, it, the, these actually should be rewards for a responsible society. You get 88% vaccination rate, everything's open again. That's fantastic. That's like what you need for herd immunity. You have 50%? No, there should be restrictions. There should still be like serious curtailments. Um, and you would hope that the NBA players who have liked to position themselves as real strong moral authorities from time to time, um, doing real big sweeping gestures, using the court and stuff to assert their moral authority. And like, look, this is, I'm saying this 
And they're doing it in services of causes that, like, I agree with, right? Like, like we need to end police brutality, and there has been, in specific, a serious over-policing of poor communities, which are made up of black and brown people predominantly, and that has led into a racially-fueled animus that is real deep, and when the NBA players are taking a stand on that, it is right and good, but once you start deciding that you want to start being a moral arbiter on some of these things, like, one... You got to at least find a way to be like morally right, generally speaking. And two, you can't be an, an agent of chaos on something else and sort of justify it on this other front. And um, these NBAers, uh, in particular, basically everyone who's Chris's old fantasy basketball team ringers have been horrible. So like this last week, I'm laughing because like this is a serious story. But at first, you know, like, oh, man. Bradley Beal, or no, at first it was Jamal Murray, and then next it was like Bradley Beal, and then Draymond Green, and every one of these guys have been staples on my basketball teams, uh, my fantasy basketball teams at some point, especially Bradley Beal, um, and all of them have had absolutely garbage takes when it comes to the COVID-19 vaccine. Bradley Beal went up there and was doing the I'm just asking questions routine. Jamal Murray, I'm not going to get the vaccine. And then LeBron James getting praise um, for saying, after Golden State Warrior Draymond Green made a plea to honor the feelings of unvaccinated teammates on Friday, LeBron James said, quote, he couldn't have said it better myself. Um, So, like... And then LeBron, of course, well, I had to really think on it. I had to really think on it, but I did finally get vaccinated. It's just like, dude, it's agonizing. And like all power to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who rules, and we need like tons of statues of this guy when he passes. Um, and maybe if you, while he's still alive too, if, you know, while we're getting at it. Him and Dolly Parton. Um, but yeah, no, like get, get me statues of Kareem and Dolly Parton all across, and Willie Nelson all across this great land of ours. That's that's how I'd be doing it. I'm just, you know, this is no America now. Um, uh, yeah, so LeBron cheers plea to honor unvaccinated people's feelings. Um, we actually shouldn't. We actually shouldn't. Um, you know, in my conversation with my friend, and, you know, he was like, oh, we can agree to disagree. And I was like, no, 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 no. This is America, and you have the right to be wrong. But I can't meet you halfway on this. Like, you know, it's kind of like global warming. Like, I just can't meet you halfway on this one. Um, the, you know, you have the right to be wrong. But, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to force you to get, fall in line and comply or whatever. That's gross. But, uh, yeah, you know, I'm also not going to tell you, well, you know, everyone can feel their own way and there's no harm, no foul. No, there actually absolutely 100% is harm and there is foul. Uh, all right. Let us move on to the budget bill. Let's yeah, let's move on to the budget bill. We we could circle back around to the Biden administration and the booster shot thing here. Maybe maybe I guess we could wait. We can wait on the booster shot thing. Let's talk about the budget bill and in specific Kirsten Cinema. So Kirsten, I, I call it Kirsten a lot, but it's actually Kirsten Cinema or Kirsten Cinema. Uh, I, this is this is a name like Tyler for me, where I'm I'm starting to be convinced that there are no good Kirstens and there are no good Tylers. Uh, I was having a discussion with somebody the other day that like Tylers are always of dubious qualities, and if there's a Tyler listening to this, well, no, I actually do know one Tyler who's not of dubious quality. I know because yeah, he used he's a big fan of the All in the Family podcast, and that guy was real cool. Um, but uh, broadly speaking, Tyler's suspect, very sus. Uh, and I'm feeling, I'm, I'm kind of there with Kirsten's now. Uh, I, you know, I didn't like Gillibrand and who would have thought that Gillibrand would actually be a more preferable, uh, Kirsten to cinema. Um, but here we are. So 
the agony for me over the last week is to watch professional politics watchers, uh, many of whom are never Trump, but they are also never Trump and then also never Dem, which is to say, what are you then? You, you can say you're not this and you can say you're not that, but, you know, I mean, at a certain point, you have to be something, right? Like, you know, I, and I, I get, well, I'm an independent. No, I, I get that. But like a lot of times how we manifest our independence is through looking at the binary that we're presented at any given time and zigging and zagging. Um, but you've got to like kind of make that work out. Uh, and, I, you know, on one hand, you have a party that openly encouraged subverting the last election. Um, and, and by openly encouraging, I mean like Josh Halley doing the fist up with his black leather glove on before they go to try to like stop Mike Pence and Congress from re- certifying the results of the election here uh, with, as we covered in the last you know show here, the Eastman memo really guiding just how thoroughgoing this plan was thought out by serious people and how this could like seriously work. I, I mean... This is this is pretty substantial stuff here, uh, and, and then you have these never Trump people try to equate like the Freedom Caucus and the people who like actively encourage that on Mark Meadows. They equate them to AOC and the Squad, and it's like okay, yes, I get. On one hand, these are the most liberal people, and on the other hand, these are the most uh, conservative people. But another way of thinking about this is, what of them has actively encouraged domestic terror? And the other one are just people who maybe sometimes wear clothing you're not, you know, really excited about, like tax the rich dresses and things like that. Like, uh, you know, these these are not the same thing. Like, I don't like Kirsten Cinema, but compared to the people who actively encouraged domestic terror, this isn't like a, well, she's bad and she's hurting the country. No, like, they're hurting the country more. Like, she's hurting the country. Don't get me wrong. It's absolutely true she's hurting the country. But, like, the domestic terror encouraging people in Congress, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, way more of a problem with, with the Jewish space lasers, among among other things that she's sort of thrown out there. Um, Oh, 9-11 truther Marjorie Taylor Greene. Like, they, these... This false equivalency is very, very, very dangerous. And and it's dangerous because it gives rhetorical cover. And, like, I'm saying this because I'm about to kind of go after a piece from friend of the show, Matt Lewis. Um, like Matt, he's a really nice guy. And personally, um, I've actually, you know, when we talked about Too Dumb to Fail, I think he's got a lot of great insights about the decline of the Republican Party and its pursuit and embrace of anti-intellectualism at all costs as like a means to an end, um, how, how to get to someplace. And, you know, his his discomfort with that, I think, is heartfelt and earnest. I think Matt has a lot of good things to say. As I said, he's a nice guy. He really is. I know he's probably, I, I know he's not everyone's cup of tea. Um, I Believe me, you've all told me that. But I do earnestly like this person as a person um that said he wrote a piece this week in the daily beast and what he said here is absolutely bonkers baseball i'm sorry like you matt but this is bonkers baseball quote to try and understand cinema's supposed betrayal some on the left are speculating that she has sold out to political donors but this ignores the fact that she could just as easily rake in progressive money like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have done. A more plausible, if less sexy, theory is that she is making her political choices first and then accepting money from those willing to finance those choices. 
This quote is wrong in like any number of different ways. Uh, let's start with the last sentence first because I think this is a fairly quick point. A more plausible, if less sexy, theory is that cinema is making her political choices first and then accepting money from those willing to finance their choices, supposes, and he says this in the previous sentence, that Sanders and Warren have been taking progressive positions out of corruption. That that corruption from these progressive money groups is what makes Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren act the way they do versus the, you know, again, using Matt's word here, plausible, the much more plausible way of reading that situation of progressive groups like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders because, like, Elizabeth Warren fights on Jay Powell. And <laughs> Yuffie, see, Yuffie's upset too. Yuffie, you know, this gets her wound up. Like, Elizabeth Warren fights on Jay Powell. Elizabeth Warren fights on regulation. Bernie Sanders fights on student loans. Uh, there's a lot more money keeping student loans in place than fighting against it. Like, I mean, really, every one of these positions where these guys are, quote-unquote, raking in the money from progressive groups, the opposition is much better financed. So, like, that quote right there sort of beggars belief. And, like, I know Matt knows how to get on to opensecrets.org. You know, like, like there, there is a very easy way to go and look at cinema's political donations, comp it to, like, her previous races. I mean, you know, not for nothing, this, this Arizona Senate race, she spent $25 million. She had to raise $25 million. Her previous race, she's only ever had to raise $4 million. She's working on a much larger scale here, financially speaking, um, and so she needed new friends, and those new friends needed new things from her. Like, this is sort of, it, it's a very easy, empirical story. You don't need to, quote-unquote, speculate on this. Like, this isn't speculative when I'm saying that cinema needed $25 million for this Senate race, and in her previous race, she only needed $4 million, so she needed friends with $20 million to kind of walk out of the woodwork here, um, and she made some choices about who her friends are, and some of her friends include groups like the Blue Dog Coalition, so maybe she decided that she's no longer the person who used to scream at Joe Lieberman why are you a Democrat when you're not even voting with the party? That's actually true stuff from Kirsten Cinema about 10 years ago. Um, she used to be the type of person who would yell at the Joe Liebermans of the world, which is why I used to be kind of fond of people like Kirsten Cinema. Um, and now she is the type of person who is the Joe Liebermans of the world. Uh, to quote an old Stabbing Westward song, she's become the thing she hates, or at least the thing that she used to hate. Uh, so, like... It beggars belief, and and when people are professional politics watchers, especially when you've got decades of experience on it, I'm not calling you an old man, Matt. Um, but like you know, you look at Charlie Sykes. Charlie Sykes, I think, is like around sixty. Uh, he's been doing this for decades now. I refuse to think these people in thirty years just like didn't learn this game. I, I mean, really, like, like it it just it it is deliberative obtuseness here. Um, but, but, like, let's go a little bit further. Like, let's say you didn't learn the game over the last 30 years. You need only pay attention to what's been going on the last 12 months here. Kirsten Cinema, 
Democrat of Arizona is facing backlash for the campaign donations she received from banks and political action committees working on behalf of debt collectors. The money was reportedly donated after Cinema sided with the Republicans opposing the $15 an hour minimum wage proposed under Joe Biden's American Rescue Plan. According to the FEC, she received four grand in donations just three days after she voted against the minimum wage increase. Uh, the donors included Morgan Stanley, the Association of Credit and Collection Professionals, and the Commercial Law League. Uh, these are two packs representing debt collectors who both donated $1,000 to Cinema. Uh, like, obviously, four grand is fairly small potatoes for someone who is now needing a war chest of $25 million. And whenever you are looking at these donor stories, um, whether it's leaning in a direction that you would like it to lean in, or I'd actually argue even more so if it's leaning in a direction you don't want to lean in, really take a look and see if the numbers really scale. Because, like, like, this one's fairly weak, but it certainly suggests that, like, there's a donor feedback thing. And let us... Be clear here. If Cinema was really worried about this, uh, she could have refunded this four grand just as easily uh, because she doesn't need four grand is not going to make or break her reelection campaign in six years. She's actively taking this money. She has no problem taking this money. Um, and you know, th- th- these are the sort of the wages of sin, right? Um, the wages of cinema, if you will. Uh, now we have the New York Times reporting the week after uh, last episode uh, th- during this last week here with Democrats pleading for a deal on hard fought social safety net bills. One of the key holdouts, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, left Washington on Friday. The reason her spokesman said was a medical appointment for foot surgery. Stopping right there. I know there are people who think that that's dubious. I don't know. Having seen her walking in a boot, either she's really committed to the gimmick or like she actually did need some like foot thing. Um, did she need to go to Arizona for it? Probably not. I, I mean, flying can sometimes make like your stuff swell. I, I don't. I just have a hard time believing that you need to go to Arizona to get a foot thing. Uh, surely there's a doctor in DC. I, I don't know. You know, uh, if if you were in, if you thought about yourself as someone who works in DC, you'd probably get yourself a DC doctor. Uh, if you think about yourself as someone who has to go to DC for work but lives in Arizona, I guess you'd have an Arizona doctor then, right? Uh, sometimes these stories have little tells in them about cinema's real mindset uh, that are subtle but are actually much more palpable. It's the difference between words and actions. On Saturday, uh, this this past Saturday, she is scheduled to, uh, to attend her political action committee's, quote, retreat with donors at a high-end resort and spa in Phoenix. Three different sources confirmed, including attendee. The hotel confirmed the event, which kicks off with a cocktail reception at 5.30 p.m., followed by a dinner. Um, <laughs> you know, again, it, it, how much money will she raise on this? I don't know, but she also does not care about the optics of this. Um, and I mean, Matt talks about this and Liz Cheney, uh, he uses the word indifference and sort of like applauds their indifference. Um, the indifference that cinema has here is that she's for sale and the only thing she cares about is your money. And if you don't have the money, uh, then she doesn't want to hear from you. And that's been put into even more stark relief with these interactions with cinema too, right? Uh, real quickly though, we got one other piece of corrupt cinema stuff to talk about. Um, in the past week here, she had a event for Cinema for Arizona, and they held the Capitol Hill event with five business lobbying groups, many of which fiercely oppose the bills she is supposed to be negotiating. 
under Cinema's political logo, the National Association of Wholesaler Distributors and the Grocers Pack, along with lobbyists for roofers and electrical contractors, and a small business group called the S-Corp Political Action Committee, invited association members to an undisclosed location on Tuesday for 45 minutes to go and write checks for $1,000 to $5,800. I'm sorry, but like the idea that there's anything noble going on there, and, like, and again, going to the indifference, Cinema is indifferent. She's indifferent to the fact that this is naked corruption. She's indifferent to the fact that this is the problem in Washington, where big business groups can show up and just real quickly write the check, and they don't even need to talk to you. Why do they? Why do they not even need to talk to you? They don't need to talk to you because they get that the money talks. They get that the money talks, and they hand you the money, and then you do the thing. You do the thing that they pay you for, and you don't even have to ask twice. What what does the roofer and electrical commission group? Okay, a little more ambiguous on that one there. But like the wholesaler distributors, the grocers pack, like you know they are opposed to key provisions in this bill. You know what they want. I don't know what roofers want. I, they actually lower lower requirements on labor. Uh, less vetting of labor. Uh, okay, bad roofer joke. But anyways, point being. Like, doing this little, like, drive-through pay-me gimmick here, I, come on, come on, this is not dialogue with the voter, and you juxtapose that, you juxtapose that with the fact that cinema won't talk to reporters, um, you had, uh, you had the guy from MSNBC yesterday trying to get in touch with cinema, cinema won't talk to reporters, well, if she won't talk to the reporters and speak for herself and explain where it is she's coming from, then I guess her constituents are eventually going to want to talk to her, right? Uh, it's only the most reasonable thing in the world. People want answers from you. You're an elected official. You work for us. Um, the Tea Party people used to love saying all this stuff, and now they're so quick to defend cinema's silence and like her, her refusal to talk about any of this stuff because it's in service to them. But like, no, like the Tea Party people are right. All these elected officials need to be treated with a lot less respect. We n need to look at these people as people who work for us. Joe Manchin, you work for us, Mr. Yacht Boy. Yacht Boy, you work for me, Yacht Boy. I want to come on that yacht. Uh, cinema? I don't actually really want to hang out with you anywhere. I guess give me the bottle of wine. Give me the bottle of wine. I'm going to go do something else, but I'll take the wine. Um, so, like, these people work for us. And, and it is right and good to confront them. I, it is right and good to confront them in the airports. It's right and good to confront them on a college campus. Um... The only place it is not right and good to confront them is in a bathroom. And I know some of you are going to go, oh, Chris is becoming an old man on this thing. Like, I think it should be pretty clear before we even wheel into this section that, like, I'm, like, scorched Kirsten Cinema's earth. So, if anything, I look at the events of this last weekend as mild, broadly speaking. Um, even the treatment of cinema in the bathroom I consider was mild. However, I have a big problem with filming in the bathroom. So, for starters, uh, in the state of Arizona, and, like, look, not every law is moral. Believe me, I'm the first to tell you that. Uh, but, in the state of Arizona, it is illegal to film people in the bathroom. And if we just, like, wind the calendar back, like, I don't know, like, four weeks ago, uh, and all of us listening to this show, we're all chilling out someplace, cool, outside, safely, social distanced, 
safely social distance. Come on, Squaresville's. Um, no, like we're all hanging out and we're talking about the idea of filming people in a bathroom, like not like in a vacuum, not like naming any specific person. I feel that even with the fairly broad range of viewpoints of people who listen to this show, it would have been uniformly agreed that filming in a bathroom is a good law to have on the books because there's really probably not a real good reason to be filming anyone in the bathroom. Right? Right? I, I, I should hope so. I really should hope so, guys. I, like, like, this should not be hard. So then the defense is, okay, but she's a person of power. We should have the right to afflict the powerful. And I'm even receptive to that idea. Okay. But here's where this particular incident falls completely off the rails for me, and you can't get me to okay. The second you walk into the bathroom and you see that there are people who have no power whatsoever, who are in a bathroom, who are taking a piss or a shit, and you are still running camera on those people, you are creating a traumatic situation to NPCs. Basic non-political civilians. See what I did there? You like that? I, I saved that. That, but that give me credit. Save that, but give me credit. Um, these non-political civilians. These are not people who need to be involved in this. And the the law is on the book specifically to protect those people. Absolutely. So the second that these activists walked in and saw that other girl walk out the stall, they should have turned the camera off and they should have deleted the video. And it is self-righteous and gross to find a way to justify, oh, you know, I'm filming in the bathroom, but it's in, the, it's in the cause of the fact that Joe Manchin's an asshole. No, 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 no. And if it had been me, and someone had walked in, and Joe Manchin's in there, and I'm sitting on a shitter, and I walk out, and I'm getting filmed. Um, I'm going up to that person, and I'm asking them to stop the video and delete the video. I'm saying that Joe Manchin's a piece of shit. This has nothing to do with this. And hell, I can't stop you if you want to roll tape once there's no one but Joe Manchin in the bathroom. Like, that's weird to me, and you're probably not going to get anywhere, and the optics of it are going to play pretty badly politically. But, like, dude is a dude in power. The, I, the one thing that the advocates of the pro-side position are correct about is that, like, the rules should be different for the powerful. But the rules do not change just because the powerful are in a room with the non-powerful. Uh, especially if you want to be a champion of the, the disadvantaged here. Like, you're going into a bathroom and you're filming people. Um, and you're filming women, which I guess, like, I mean, does that really matter? Sort of does, right? I, yeah, it, like, I, I don't, I, I guess I don't really know why as I say that, but I, I optically it matters that there's a reason why it would matter, I suppose. Um, because, like, people broadly speaking think that running cameras in a women's bathroom is like some Chuck Berry shit. Uh, and that's kind of weird, dude. It's kind of weird, bro. And, and like, look, the, the other things I've seen in defense is, well, they're all wearing masks. Okay, but like, come on. Uh, you didn't even attempt to like censor out their faces. But like also, just because they're wearing masks we when we don't know their identity does not devoid the traumatic experience of being in a bathroom, minding your own business, and all of a sudden becoming a mimetic incident on the internet because these people want a point score on Kirsten Cinema in kind of like a small potato sort of way. Um, and, and, and I mean, even if this had really paid dividends, which it didn't, by the way, I don't know that the trade-off would have been worth it. So, like, I have a very, very, very hard time with the section of the progressive and left movement that is trying to, like, justify this, like, in, in sort of very 
Machiavellian ways. Um, not the least of which is that the Machiavellian argument is actually fairly uncompelling here, right? Like, um, the ends, okay, so I guess you could say what we are trying to do is a noble cause, and therefore, we, you know, extremism in pursuit of liberty is no vice, to sort of paraphrase Barry Goldwater here, right? Uh, but another way of thinking about it is it, maybe it's only worth it in a utilitarian sense. Like, I, I would be much more receptive to the Machiavellian argument if there was a really compelling utilitarian argument to bolster the Machiavellian position. And frankly speaking, there isn't. There isn't. Um, I, I mean, I don't even know that it really helps the case that cinema only talks if you've got money. Uh, and that that's really unfortunate. I got one more thought on the cinema only talks if you got money thing that uh, I kind of popped in my head yesterday when I was thinking about this. Because I had this moment of like, you know what they should do? They should just walk up with a $2,800 check and be like, hey, can I can I buy some time with you, Kirsten Cinema? I got I got money right here. I'm making it out to your political action committee. I'd like to buy some time with you. Um, but of course, what would happen if you did that is then the civility brigade would be like, oh, they are calling Kirsten Cinema a whore. Uh, this is sexism. This is sexism. However, if you did the exact same thing to Joe Manchin, that would not be the framing on it at all, which, interestingly enough, is probably sexism, right? <laughs> it's like, well, no one wants to sleep with Joe Manchin, so like that would clearly know that that's not what the money's for. Uh, and Joe Manchin, very much for sale here. Manchin asked by reporter Ari Natter whether an energy company he founded is a conflict of interest as he negotiates reconciliation. Manchin I've been in a blind trust for 20 years. I have no idea what they're doing. Ari, you're still getting dividends. Mansion, you got a problem. Uh, he's getting he's getting off the hook in a serious way because of cinema. More on that thought in just a moment here. A little bit more from Mary Natter first. The energy company Mansion founded. Your son still owns it, doesn't he? Mansion, you'd do best to change the subject. Uh, he didn't say mister. He should have said mister. He could have said mister. You change the subject, mister. Um, but you get the idea here. That was from Frank Thorpe. Um, you get the idea here. Like, Manchin, you know, very much for sale on this front, too. Cinema, I think, beyond everything else, has been doing unbelievable damage to the uh, corrupt coalitions, the, the, the Manchinima coalition, if you will, uh, and their optics, because... The original plan here was to make the progressives seem like the hostage takers. And cinema is just incapable of not seeming like the villain. Uh, she doesn't know how not to do it. Um, or maybe that's the wrong way of saying it, honestly. Like, like you know, let's let's stop here. Maybe, maybe that's wrong. Um, maybe cinema absolutely knows how not to do it and, and just, like, is incapable of it at this point. The thing with cinema that is so interesting, I'll say, I mean, it's frustrating too, but it's really interesting, is that you, you're looking at cinema, and especially if you haven't been too particularly familiar with cinema right now, you look at this person and you probably think she's like an intellectual lightweight. I mean, you'd be forgiven for thinking that, right? Like, what grown-ass adult wears a fuck-off ring in these like little pinky-dinky outfits and stuff? I mean, like, she dresses like... She dresses like a mom who's still trying to be hot. 
probably the best way of like, thinking about cinema. It's like, all right, but like, why? You know, you're like a seven year old kid. You're like, why is my mom dressing like this? One of those sort of things. I grew up a lot around a lot of those uh, where where I grew up. Um, not my mom, thank God. My mom was cool. Uh, but 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 I definitely had some friends who had moms like that. Uh, more fun was your friend's mom, right? Uh, so anyways, uh, <laughs> wholesome thought right there, Chris. Nicely done. So like, you'd look at her. And you get this one impression based on the way she dresses herself. I mean, you know, famously, we remember the way she was dressed up, uh, minimum wage vote, but like she sort of like almost memes herself with these like horrible, like brutal, like weird, they're like weird outfits. They're not aesthetically pleasing uh, and, and all this sort of thing. Uh, and it, it points you in one personality direction. Now, what if I told you that Kirsten Cinema is one of these types of people who graduated high school early, like a couple years early? It was like in college. Or like wrapping up college by the time she was 18 or something like that. Like she's actually really smart. Um, that certainly helps better understand or, or demystify. Does cinema or doesn't cinema know what she's doing? Is she or is she not deliberately being obtuse? No, she's feeling the heat right now. And what was interesting is the Axios report that came out where the, the big thing in the Axios report, she didn't care about being called corrupt. Um, and her quote-unquote friends, her friend's name like Surston Kinema, uh, <laughs> her, her friends are talking about how she's really smart uh, and that you're underestimating her intelligence. And I think that's the big thing that is really touching a nerve right now. She doesn't like being called dopey. Um, because what she's doing is very cagey. But when she comes out and says that, that it only points the direction even further as someone who is, I'm not even a professional political watcher, right? Like, like it is hard to look at the Don't Worry Patreon. Uh, we got some new supporters. Appreciate that. Uh, but like, look, uh, this is not a big market show. This is a small market show. Proudly so. Uh, I'm not, I haven't been trying to grow it like that in, in a while now. Um, but like, you would not look at uh you wouldn't look at these numbers and mistake it for for big time numbers or whatever but like you know Matt Lewis Charlie Sykes these type of people uh you know you're running the bulwark uh, I expect you to be able to kind of put two and two together here on what is going on with cinema if she's not a dope and she's having these little drive through get the money and run sessions. We know who cinema is. We know what cinema's about. We know what cinema's doing and why she's doing it. There's no reason to be obtuse about this. I'm not even speculating. I'm making an informed opinion. Um, and, and even if you want to say it's speculation, um, and we're using the metrics of plausibility, it is far more implausible that there's anyone in Washington who's up there for super noble reasons. And to be completely frank, the most plausible read when you talk about like the most fringy people in political elements is I think a lot of them actually believe it. You know, Michelle Bachman, look, she's crazy dog, but I think her craziness was absolutely 100% heartfelt. Uh, I think that she really believed all the crazy stuff she spouted out. Are there cynical operators on the fringe? Yeah, they tend to be on the right, though, Matt. Uh, I mean, like, you know, like Rick Santorum, cynical operator. Okay, I'll buy that. I'll buy that. And there certainly are some cynical operators on the right. But I also think, like, a guy like Dennis Prager or whatever is also a true believer in a lot of this, like, Christian mysticism and that sort of thing. Like, I don't, I don't think it's an act. Uh, probably is for Candace Owens. Uh, you know, Candace Owens, probably someone who's, who's doing work here. Dave Rubin, probably someone who's doing work here. Um, but it's much more the case 
that these people in the center are the ones doing work here. I think Manchin does. Well, I think Manchin actually earnestly has no beliefs. Like, his belief is where the money's at. And, like, if there was enough money to make him a liberal for real skis, and, like, he actually believed he could hang on to power, which is the the important thing, he'd do that deal, too. It's all just about money for him. Um, ditto with cinema. It's, it's all just about money. I don't think cinema had a conversion and then found people to finance her conversion. I think cinema had the realization that she needed to raise 20 million more dollars than she's ever had to raise in her life. I mean, you look at her like local races, dude, she was like having to raise under a hundred thousand dollars. She now has to raise five times the amount of money she's ever had to raise in her life. And that new $20 million of purchase, uh, it kind of gets back to, Oh, I forget who said this, but it's my boat's not for sale, but you can rent it. Uh, like, like that, she opened up a big timeshare of how much you can rent a Christian cinema. Um, and people had to come in there and people have come in there and filled that gap. She monetized herself. Um, that's cool. That's cool. Uh, all right, man, I almost want to get more on the Facebook story. So like, I don't really care about the Blumenthal Finsta thing other than, you know, it is always alarming whenever we have these legislatures who don't or legislators who don't really understand like the nuances of what they're asking. And like Blumenthal is actually kind of good on some things. So like, you know, I don't want to beat up on him too, too much. Um, but the Finsta thing is interesting too. And I think what Blumenthal was getting into is this idea that the way Facebook juices its numbers is letting people make fake accounts and, you know, done at a scale too. You could really boost the numbers and really pad the numbers. You know, you can have people come in and make like five, 10 accounts and one person's now 10 people. And that means something like, you know, you do that over a million people, that's 10 million new subscribers. Like It's very easy to recognize how like, and even the other way, so like Facebook allows for two or three accounts. That means that probably the actual user base of Facebook's maybe about 60% of what it actually is, right? Like, you know, if, if we're just kind of taking a shot at maybe 7%, 70%, I don't know. But like, it's 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 meaningfully less than their top line number that they report. Um, and so I actually think the Facebook had, I mean, she did she did a nice job here. Uh, the safety chief did a nice job here by like, you know, making Senator Blumenthal look deliberately obtuse or look, look like he really didn't know what was going on. Um, when she could have probably, you know, she could have thrown him a line if she wanted to, but that, that, that's also not her job. So in, in fairness to her, that is actually not her job. Um, it is his job to catch her. Uh, so, you know, could she have done the right thing? Yeah. But like if Facebook was going to do the right thing, wouldn't they have done it by now? Uh, I, we, you know, uh, just, just a thought, like it could have happened. It's, it's not happening. Um, so after these hearings, an interesting thing happens, which is that Facebook goes down in a massive way. And I think it's one thing to think that maybe it was an outside attack. It might have been an outside attack. We, we don't know yet. We, we just don't know. Um, but man, I'm of the opinion, and this is entirely conjectural, that they were doing something internally that was substantial. And it affected their servers somehow. Uh, obviously, you know, them trying to get Facebook back on was like a... Uh, they had to use like a metal bar filing thing and all this other crap. Like, just let it die. Just let it die. Um, but but that was it. It was an interesting little thing here. I don't use Facebook. I haven't used Facebook in years. Facebook is really bad. Uh, and it's weird. Like the weirdest thing 
is to watch someone like Glenn Greenwald come out and basically be like, don't, don't regulate Facebook or like sort of like take these like nuanced positions on that stuff. I'm like, dude, what, what was the point of all the Snowden stuff? Like what, why then? Like why and for what then? Why and for what then? Um, but I wanted to comment on Facebook. We got to find out more. We need to find out more about the outage. Um, I hope they investigate that in the same way that they are starting to turn the corner on the investigation into Robin hood and them shutting down their servers. There's been some interesting developments there. Um, so we will be following up on those things. Um, what I want to end this show on here is China. So China has been doing a serious military buildup ever since they transitioned from a one-party state to essentially a fascistic state under the head of Xi Jinping, who made himself permanent president for life. Um, it happened kind of quietly. Like, there was no big fanfare. She, she was really smart about this, right? Like, he got... He got he got the premiership, which historically has been 10 years, kind of let himself get his foothold in there. And then basically, after he got his second premiership, he was like, okay, well, we're just not going to do any more premierships for right now. You know, I'm, I'm just going to be president for, for a real a premiere for a long, long time now. Um, I, I'm now basically the head of China. Uh, and with, with that, which is like one announcement, basically solidified that like Taiwan, or I'm sorry, China is an autocratic state. And since that momentous day, China has changed. Uh, and not for the better. Uh, they have been curtailing civil liberties uh, in the form of the social credit system, which they had already been sort of rolling out at the start of Xi Jinping's administration. But like, you know, person the point that Xi Jinping's leaning into it, not moving away from it, right? Like if he was a good guy, he'd be moving away from this credit system. Um, he's not though. So he's leaning into it as a way of state control. I was reading this week that China is now going to remove um, video games that have you make moral choices between good and evil uh, because, well, that gets really complicated, right? Like what? Yeah. But, I mean, these are not things that a good state does is, is sort of what I would say. Uh, ethnic cleansing in the Xinjiang of a Muslim minority population. These are not things that a good country does. Uh, the pair up and become family program. These are not things a good country does. The re-education camps, not a thing a good country does. Invading Hong Kong and breaking down like their, you know, separate sovereign, you know, way of living and stuff and, and bringing them under the one China flag in a very aggressive way. Not a thing a good country does. And the ramping up of military production, uh, the expansionist claims into the South China Sea, um, territorial disputes with China, with uh, Japan, um, the map that shows like the massive belief of what they think they have rights to. Um, they have been moving in an expansionist way, the way they use the Belt and Road Initiative um, in, in, in ways that are like the worst elements of the United States is, you know, foreign investment sort of programs here. Um, like these are not things a good country does. And a lot of this stuff has been a blind eye has been turned to it. Um, especially by our side. And the, un the the problem with that is that then when the right stares at it, they stare at it with their stupid eyes. And, you know, their answer is like, China gave us coronavirus! Like, you know, but like also I'm not going to get the vaccine. Um, like, like the, the, We're not getting like sophisticated thinking for them on a nuanced problem 
that unfortunately has echoes from some of the worst stuff of the 20th century. And, and I think for some of us who are starting to arrive at like, you know, like the first third of life, like I'm 35 now, um, I grew up in the 90s where, you know, we got a lot of never again education, a lot of World War II education, good stuff, good stuff, you know. A lot of us have grandparents who were in World War II, and so like it, it is relevant to us. Um, now, obviously, we've got a younger generation coming up. The students I teach, 20 years younger than me. A lot of them born when the year was a two. Um, so they don't they don't have that route back to the 20th century and that like connection back to World War II. We're, we're starting to put enough distance from it. Um, and it's, it's always dangerous when you start putting enough distance from it because that's when never again it becomes again. And I, I really do worry about China uh, under Xi Jinping specifically and his government specifically uh, and the fact that they have morphed into this autocratic state fairly quietly. Like th there was not, unlike Germany, there has not been the Reichstag fire. And unlike Germany, you know, like the, it's not like the 1932 moment. Although, like, let's think about that a little bit too. The 1932 moment is kind of informative because it's eight years prior to us actually needing to get involved, but like you can really see that the die is cast once the 1932 Germany moment happens, right? I think we had that moment here. I think that moment already happened, and I don't think we've recognized it as such. Like when Xi Jinping sort of quietly morphed China into an autocratic state, I think we had our 1932 moment, and I think we are unfortunately cruising on a track that has some echoes from the 20th century here. And that's only further exacerbated by China being ready to mount, uh, quote, or this is from CNN, China could be ready to mount a full-scale invasion of Taiwan by 2025, Island's defense ministers say. And this is premised off of China being capable of mounting a full-scale invasion by 2025, uh, according to the defense minister, days after record numbers of warplanes flew into Ch Taiwan's air defense zone. With regards to staging an attack on Taiwan, they currently have the ability, but China has to pay the price, uh, said Chu Kocheng, the defense minister, um, to Taiwanese jur journalists. But he said that by 2025, the price will be lower, and China will be able to mount a full-scale invasion. His comments came after China sent 150 warplanes, including fighter jets and nuclear-capable bombers, into Taiwan's air defense identification zone since October 1st. At a parliament meeting Wednesday, Chu described the cross-strait military tensions as, quote, the most serious in more than 40 years since he joined the military. Um, and, and this is, dude, 150 airplanes. Um, the lawmakers reviewed a $8.6 billion special defense budget for homemade weapons, including missiles and warships. Um, according to journalists after the meeting, Chu noted that Taiwan has not made any moves to provoke an attack in response to the Chinese air incursions. We will make preparations militarily. I think our military is like this. If we need to fight, we will be, we will be on the front lines. Taiwan and mainland China have been governed separately since the end of a civil war more than 70 years ago, in which the defeated nationalists fled to Taipei. However, Beijing views Taiwan as an inseparable part of its territory, even though the Chinese Communist Party has never governed the democratic island of 24 million people. Beijing has refused to rule out military force to capture Taiwan if necessary and blames what it calls collusion between Taiwan and the United States for rising cross-strait tensions. The U.S. has been making negative moves by selling arms to Taiwan and strengthening official military ties with Taiwan, including the launch of a $750 million arms sales plan to Taiwan. 
Um, the Chinese foreign minister said uh, that they will exchange views on China and U.S. relations on relevant issues. Uh, sorry, bad paragraph, not particularly useful. Um, they didn't provide dates to the meeting. All right, that's the end of that article. So the point here is that this week we had 150 Chinese fighter jets go into Taiwanese airspace. Taiwan has around 500 fighters, many of which are old. And there's a few different ways of thinking about this stuff. Are we like on the corner of war's door? Yes, yeah, sort of, but no. Um, here's what China is doing, and it's kind of insidious. It's like death by a thousand slices. So China is like a poker player that has the big stack going up against the poker player with the smaller stack and just constantly betting. For those of you who've played poker and you've ever been short stack going up against big stack, you know what this feels like, and it sucks. Um, and it sort of forces you into a real sort of desperation situation because the big stack can just keep throwing money at the problem, throwing money at the problem, and it hurts you. And it hurts you, and you're being you're using discretion because you're like looking at these cards, and you're like, this hand sucks, I gotta fold. This hand sucks, I gotta fold. But the tax in you every single time, and it's death by little slices. Every time China scrambles their jets into Taiwanese airspace, it necessitates a response from Taiwan. This is 25 million people versus 1 billion people. Um, and a military that's, though, not quite that scale, comparable enough. Like, yeah, the Taiwanese military is not, for for the size of 24 million people, like having 400-something fighter jets, you know, it's substantial stuff. But you're going up against China, it has thousands and thousands of them and have been making more of them. And they're all fairly of recent vintage because like China has done a prodigious military ramp up. Another reason why everyone should be wary of China here, guys, is like just like when the U.S. does like a really big military buildup. They don't do it with the intention of never using all the stuff, right? Like when you do a big military spending package, the goal is to use the stuff. Now. Granted, when we get into defense contracting stuff, and especially with China's history of buying stuff that they never use, that could very much be a thing. But I tend to think that that's more real with like commercial real estate than with these fighter jets. I think they intend to use them. And if you look at their vision of what the world map looks like under China, it seems pretty reasonable to say, yeah, no, like China probably intends on using these airplanes and this sort of thing. Uh, so, yeah, no, it, I think that, we are right to be concerned about this. I think China or Taiwan is right to say like there could be a full scale invasion of Taiwan here. And the United States and Australia and France, who are currently still being really whiny bitches and conservatives are defending France against America, which just tickles my funny bone. My, my, how the partisanship partisanships. Uh, my, my goodness. Uh, like, geez, Louise. So like, I mean, what, Europe and what Australia and what the Asia Pacific countries, I mean, like all these various places need to really, really seriously ruminate on is, okay, how long can this China thing go before we put a check on them? And I'm not saying, like, I want to be clear. I'm not saying we need to invade them, but what we need to do is at some point set up a military front 
that says to China, look, dude, there's a water's edge. I know you got this fancy plan of having like the 21st century be the Chinese century, but like this dude named Adolf also had kind of that vision about 80 years ago. And like we firmly said no to that. And, and it was probably right and good that we firmly said no to that. Um, like China, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, especially under Xi Jinping, is dangerous and, and and they have been aggressive and they are imperialist and militaristic like all of the adjectives that you know the Howard Zins of the world would bandy about the United States Noam Chomsky would have bandied about bandied about the United States I think if Noam was I don't know like 35 years younger at this point I mean like he's 95 it's amazing he's still like somewhat sharp in his 90s like that's pretty wild goals Goals, but like if he was like 35 or 40 years younger, you have to imagine that like Chomsky would be saying, Well, look, you got two big, you have two big demons in the world, the United States and China, and like one demon's getting weaker while the other demon's getting stronger. It's not like the US is good and China is bad, but like, uh, you probably want to play A against B here. Um, and, and in which case, the United States is probably the good one, and you want to start at thwart China's rise here. Uh, th- this look, if if they uh if they weren't planning on invading Taiwan, they wouldn't be doing these scrambles. And they know that the more of these scrambles they do and they can do these for years and that's how China operates. They operate in like half decade and decade long phases whereas the United States w- operates in 24 month cycles. Um they can keep doing these scrambles. They can keep chipping away at Taiwan's budget, they can keep ramping up their own military, and when the time is right, as that minister said in Taiwan, the price will be far less, and they will be able to pay that price and absorb it, and they will get this big victory, this seven years in the or seventy years in the making victory over Taiwan, and then the rest of the world has to ask themselves a serious question: Are we really going to? sit back and allow a major global pl- or any global player period to go we're invading a sovereign nation and we're taking their shit and like like I, the, the whole reason they spend so much time arguing that Taiwan is not sovereign is for the very fact that for 75 years they've been sovereign like it would be a, i mean another way of thinking about this is like if there's like a full scale invasion of Israel um you would sort of be like oh i don't know if they were sovereign or not like no like obviously they would be sovereign like obviously like yes they're only like 75 years old but like that is enough time that we recognize that as sovereign like at, at least, i don't know well, i don't know where the line is i really don't is it 40 years or is it 50 years who knows who knows um but i know it's 75 like yeah it's got to be it's got it's got to be at 75 like, they can't there can be no dispute at 75. This is, you know, it's Ukraine trying to like, or it's Russia trying to invade Ukraine or something like that. Like we, you know, the, the Western world, um, and you know, really like the, the world that strives, I want to call it like the democratic world. Like, let's not talk about this East versus West. There's the democratic world and the autocratic world. And the democratic world needs to really decide how much flim flam they're willing to tolerate from the autocratic world. It's thorny, it's unpleasant, and like, look, uh, I don't love the fact that the foreign policy question of the day went from 
you know, I, this might offend some people, but I'll be real. Kind of trivial shit involving terrorism in the Middle East to a rising fascistic state. And the fact that we dithered for 20 years chasing our tail on these ridiculous projects in Afghanistan and Iraq, these quixotic dreams of bringing democracy to Iraq and you know, making Afghanistan like a really Western part of the world, like we will succeed where Russia and everyone else has failed, sort of like, I mean, those projects were so trivial and stupid uh, and and, like dumb and like siding with Saudi Arabia, dumb, 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 dumb. Uh, like, Like we've made so many dumb mistakes in the Middle East with who we chose to make our allies, how those made our our enemies, going back and forth on the Iran nuclear deal. Like, we really, really suck in the Middle East. And it's really demoralizing. It makes you not want to do anything else on foreign policy, period, which is a thing I think the Chinese government is actually kind of banking on here, um, that there will be some serious left and progressive resistance that will be rightly justified by the fact that these very same military leaders who will be saying, no, no, you need to listen to me this time. This China thing's a problem. Are the same ones who are saying, no, 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 you need to listen to me this time because this uh, Iraq thing's a problem. Um, it will be a problem because they don't have any credibility. They don't have any credibility. Uh, I, I actually think they'll probably be right on this China thing. I, I think that the evidence is very compelling that this is not like Al-Qaeda. This, this is this is much, much more severe um, and, and multifaceted. Like Al-Qaeda couldn't really jack up the American economy. China can. China can. Um, uh, Al-Qaeda didn't really have an air force. Uh, well, they do now. They do now. Well, until, until all those helicopters and stuff break down on them. But, you, you, you know, glib joke aside, like, th- there's just any number of ways where this is not the small potatoes problem that Iraq and Afghanistan and the Middle East and, like, oh, we're fighting terrorism and ISIS and all that. It, like, no. Um, that was, frankly, a way of justifying really silly military expenditures um, that would have been better spent orienting ourselves against the real problem that has been creeping up behind us this whole time. Um, so it's not pleasant. I don't like talking about it, but I, I think, you know, like, look, uh, at a certain point you have to decide whether things like ethnic cleansings really matter or they're just like a thing that we talk about sometimes is like, Oh, that, that's war. But like, I, I can't, I can't really, like, I mean, there's, like, so much talk about human rights in the United States, and I I can't really have that discussion and not go, okay, like, you know, when we're talking about human rights for other groups or whatever, dude, like, we gotta make sure we always remember the basic human rights of you have the right not to be killed by, like, the, the state, you you the like and not, I'm not talking about capital punishment here. Uh, I'm I'm talking like going to a re-education camp. Um, you know because to not be killed or you know you have the right to not go to a an ethnic cleansing camp and get wiped out because you're not the right race. Um, and and if we're not fighting for those things, you know, I feel like we're just leaving a lot on the table. Um, anyways, I, kind of a down note to end the show on here, but I, like. The Taiwan story is, it really snuck up on me. I mean, like, we knew this was going to happen at some point here, but, like, it looks like we are going to have some real choosing to do at some point here uh, with regards to Taiwan. And not by we, I mean not just the United States. I mean, like, the world. Um, and it may have really big implications. Um, and, and it might already be too late. And that's just like a really, really scary thought uh, that that what we are doing now 
is basically sort of predestined. And, uh, I mean, you'd basically need, like, a a small miracle, like Xi Jinping stroking out or something like that, to maybe stop the course of where things are going. Um, And even that wouldn't necessarily do it. So that's where we're going to end today's episode. Nice positive note. Very cool note. Uh, if you enjoyed this show here uh, and, you know, I, I got a message. New new guy was like, I haven't listened for a year. I've been freeloading. You're allowed to freeload, too, by the way. Like, especially if, like, finances are tight or whatever in between jobs. I mean, like, you know, I'm asking for, like, three bucks a month or whatever from most of y'all. Or, like, four bucks. Like, on a big month when I, when I really get humming, we get, like, five or six out. You know, like, six bucks. But, like, you know, not trying to break anyone's back. Specific why the price point is what it is. But, you know, like, keep it low so that you can do it and it's not going to hurt you. But also, look, if you really need the three bucks, you know, chill. It's cool. It's fine. Um, but, like, you know, uh, I got a message from someone's like, I've been listening for a year. I'm going to sub up this week. want to help out the show. Dude, I appreciate that. I, You know, look, I, you know, I appreciate people putting some value on my labor here. Uh, it takes time for me to do the research, to hop behind the microphone and riff like this, and you know, riffing like this is something that you really only get good at with practice. Um, hundreds and hundreds of episodes. You know, people ask me, how do you do the radio stuff? It's like, well, you do the first show, and it sucks, and you don't let anyone hear it. And then you do another one, and that still sucks, and you don't let anyone hear it. And, uh, I mean, dude, there, there was the episode that Jordan and I tried to do on Somalia, and try to, like, really understand what was going on in Somalia. That, you know, like... That was like a decade ago. It was like the worst, one of the worst episodes that I've ever made. Uh, just because we did like everything wrong and everything was going wrong. You basically only get this through experience. So like if you know, I, when people sub up, it beyond like supporting the show and justifying the time, blah blah blah. It makes me feel good because it's like, oh, people see that like this is work and like you know I appreciate that like I'm putting it out for free and like you know hoping that people throw throw a buck in the buck in the hat. So, uh, for those of you who support the show, just know, like, I, I really do appreciate it. Um, and we will uh, venture onward and on forth and uh, keep trying to grow the show out. I will be back on video again here, too. That's the other reason, you know, why I'd, I, I'm always trying to figure out ways to give more um, or, you know, make more of the product and not up the price. Um, same idea, like, where else? I guess in a way, like, where else can that exist in the world? I, I don't have control of that anywhere else but here, so I, I'm going to make it happen. Um, you can follow the show at DWATG. Go to patreon.com slash DWATG to support the show. Sub up to the show on YouTube um, and it, like do like sub up. Um, smash that like button, baby. Ring the bell. Uh, all those YouTube things that people say on YouTube. All that. Uh, at DWATG on Twitter. Patreon.com slash DWATG. That's the plug section. My name is Chris Dovenbrino. I want to thank you all so much for listening. And until the next one, Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.